Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and today is a very special episode. In this episode, I go deeper than I ever have before on the podcast on my own personal worldview and how it was forged. My time uh, as a 19-year-old living with a traditional healer in Sri Lanka, um, experiences around uh, plant medicines and my view on the quote-unquote right way to approach them, Um, where we stand in terms of this unique moment in time as a planet, and why I think there's an opportunity for a collective birth in consciousness, and a variety of other topics. Uh, This was actually a sit-down with my friend Aaron Alexander, and initially was meant to be him interviewing me for his podcast, but we wound up actually going so deep that uh, I decided to release this on mine to give you a little bit more insight into who I am and my why in a way that I hope will be profoundly valuable for you as you navigate your own waters. And I think there's a lot of valuable information in this episode, and uh, I'm really excited for you guys to check it out. If you are enjoying the podcast, please go ahead and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, it helps us move up in the algorithm, and it helps the podcast community to grow. And it, and it frankly, it means the world to me. So uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, if you ever have any feedback or suggestions, you can always hit me up at Michael Trainer on Instagram. And uh, it's my great privilege uh, and honor to serve you guys, and I'm committed to making this year really special. So thanks for listening. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Aaron Alexander. Is this idea of, okay, I feel like a lot of people go about relationships in a transactional way, this sort of still quid pro quo. You know, many of the systems I think that people live out of are still relics of you know, 20th century industrial capitalism. So the question is like, well, how do you live effectively in the 21st century? I mean, you talk about that profoundly in the context of movement, but I think what isn't often talked about, which is an area of deep interest to me, is relationally, you know, like how, you know, like in Sri Lanka, there's no word for privacy. There's no word for possession traditionally. Mm -hmm. So you exist in relationship to the whole. So alignment there isn't even Orients. I mean, of course, there's the, the the physical element, but alignment in the context of Sri Lanka is actually about orientation of the entire whole, which is the group, hmm. the collective, right? So it's sort of analogous to what Chris Ryan talks about, um, where it's that notion of you know the the the, the, tr- the traditional or pastoral, like the ancestral way of living, was very much oriented around the collective, right? In Bali, when a child was born it was passed from every lactating mother so that it would feel that the mother was in the whole, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that there's this very interesting dynamic which we're seeing, unfortunately, the dis-ease pop up in our culture, which is this fallacy of individuality and, like, the city on the hill, like... I am, you know, strong, you know, I'm, I'm basically an island unto myself, which no one's an island unto themselves. So, so basically a lot of what's becoming, well, it has been interest to me for a very long time, but is, is resurging in its interest is this idea of like, how could I explore the, these ancient techniques, technologies, worldviews in a way and translate it for the the modern mind. Hmm. I feel, I was talking just to, I love all that. I was just talking to. Do you know Daniele Bolelli? 
I don't. He's great. He's a sweetie. He, he's, he does a podcast called History on Fire, and he's, uh, he's a historian and, like, philosopher and writes books about martial arts and philosophy and all that stuff. He's great. Um, but we were talking yesterday, and just in relation to, like, how... It's interesting how addicted so many people are to social media, you know, and it's like Alan Watts talks about how we're, we're eating the menu instead of the food. Yeah. And then we get this image of, of, you know, pretty girl's face and she's smiling and she's in a waterfall and you see that on your screen, you, huh, you have this, you know, dopamine release, yeah, this whole totally. thing. And I think it's interesting that we're in kind of this almost vulnerable position because we are so autonomous and living in our nuclear islands inside of our apartments or what have you. And then we inherently do love connection because I think that connection actually feeds us. It's like this tuning mechanism. So we're in this island and then all of a sudden we have access to the internet, which opens that up and it's like, you know, it removes that veil of privacy. Totally. But it's the menu instead of the actual real thing. 100%. So now it's like, it's like, what does that do? Well, and it's, we don't even know, right? We don't really fully know, but we, we're starting to see some of the some of the downstream consequences, right? Where it's like, you know, symptoms, right? Just like we don't necessarily probably know the root of the dis-ease, yet we can start to see some of the symptoms in the form of like, you know, deep depression, loneliness, which is catalyzed by people seeing only everyone else's highlight reels. <laughs> you know I mean? Like, I'm grateful that I personally didn't grow up in like the awkward adolescent years besieged by everyone else's Instagram and Facebook and like, you know, all of the context of the, that constructive reality. Because what were you besieged by in that time? Because that's always my question. I wonder that when I'm in, in my car and yeah. I reach out for my phone, I have this like, you know, my hand just feels like it's possessed and it's like reaching down to the console to grab the phone. Yeah. And I'm like, was there just something else? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was mixtapes. Okay. I mean, like, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit older than you, so I mean, like, for me, it was mixtapes, which I actually missed. Now, talk about the Instagram. See, this is the cool thing. Like back then, when you had a crush, right? You you weren't like looking at their Instagram profile. You'd just be like thinking about, like, I mean, I don't know. I was in middle school, so like, you know, like gym class kickball game. You know, and you're like man, she's amazing. I'm going to make her the dopest mixtape ever. And I just remember like, I would like be in my room and I'd have like this ancient, like 1980s hi-fi system. And you'd lit, I'd listen to like WGCI, which was the hip hop station. Cause I, I went to public school and like, that was what I listened to. And I literally, you try to pause right in time to catch the song yeah. and then, and then hit the pause right after it ends. So I just remember like, you know, exercising in my feeble 12 year old ways, trying to like bulk up, do all the things and like hit pause right at the right time but I made some really good mixtapes yeah. to be honest like that was my that was my thing you yeah. know but and then you'd actually just like you'd go about like the notes like you'd write on the back you know it'd be like the whole like hooks like wow. fade in fade outs of the different songs I actually to this day wish that I still had those mixtapes because oh, that like yeah. almost as much as a journal it's like Man, it was a, that, those are like that's the best thing to have in a time capsule. Like if you yeah, were to yeah. go back in your own mind, oh man, yeah, I made some epic mixtapes. But was do you think there was a same level of like possession of the mixtapes? Not possession into own, but to like you know, you know a. a I don't know, a spirit possessing you. It feels almost like, like social media. No, it, like, does, it didn't have that same vibe, right? It was like, I think there, to me at least, there was like a create it and then let it go. And like, it wasn't like I, whereas I feel like with social media, all of us are like participating in this grand experiment totally. of like digital identity construction. Fuck yeah. Individually and collectively that has downstream consequences. We don't even know about, right? Like I have no idea 
how my post, which I may have total intention around being uplifting, inspirational, maybe triggering for someone else, right? Like it's like, cause, cause everyone receives things, you know, it's like Don Miguel Ruiz. It's like everyone receives things from their own dream, yeah. right? Their own construct. So I've definitely had moments where like, where I've been in darker places and like, it looks like everyone else on the planet is having this epic experience except me. Totally. And I know that other people have that same experience. And so I think, you know, the challenges with this, uh, there's their nuance, but the challenges with, I think this technological age is it's like, okay, that feeling of loneliness, which I think is in part also, I'm going to, I'm going to actually take this somewhere else, which is, I think traditionally, if we were to go to, you know, sort of ancient, let's go beyond the mixtape, let's go to deep, like ancestral, again, like that Sri Lankan aspect of tribal living Yeah. in that context there was also a, you know, constructed reality where, and that constructed reality kept that inflating of ego down at bay, right? Like, so Chris Ryan, mutual friend of ours, writes in his book, Civilized to Death, about like the hunt, you know, and hunters would go out. And even if you were the most amazing hunter, you would take an arrow from maybe an elder that was still back at camp. And if you, for example, got the kill for the meat that fed the entire community, and by the way, you didn't go off and like hoard that meat, right? That meat was for everyone. You would be kind of taken the piss out of by other hunters like me. You know, yeah. we'd, we'd give you a hard time. Why? To keep your ego keep in you check, level. keep you level, right? Yeah. And the credit would go to the elder whose arrow you used because, you know, so, so all of those mechanisms existed to keep about this sort of sense of the interdependence and interworkings of the community. Hmm. And now, I think as evidenced by technology, like we are so far from that worldview and so much about this, like, you know, like puff the chest, you know, me, mine, look, look at me, look how good, you know, that it's like, it's led to the societal disease, right? Which we're seeing manifest in a variety of forms, you know, I think like everything from, you know, and I don't want to grossly simplify, but like some of the mass shootings, I would imagine some of those are just like deeply lost souls um, who, you know, who haven't, they're, they're, we don't have the processes of individuation, right? There's no, there's no graduation from, from unindividuated boyhood into manhood. Like I, I've seen processes of individuation. I, I did, I had my own in the form of my dad taking me through something called the mankind project, which was a modern proximate approximation. Called? It's called the mankind project. Okay. It exists out there today, but it was powerful for me. I had a very unique experience where in my dark night of the soul, I moved out across the country with my girlfriend at the time. She cheated on me and I knew no one. I also used to perform capoeira. I happened to have blown my knee out at the very same time. So I didn't have my you know, way of moving and expressing myself. I didn't have my community. I didn't knew no one. And I moved across the country and my girlfriend cheated on me. So it was like, not to be in a victim mindset, I was just in a dark place. You know, I was like drinking beers. I was doing all the things that were sort of like taking me further down the darkness. And my dad was like, which is why I have such a part of the reason I have such a strong relationship with him. He was like, um, I'm, uh, he had gone through this process of individuation with these other men in the eighties. And he's like, I'm flying out and I'm going to staff your weekend get ready. Mm. And I basically went through this rite of passage that was super fucking intense. Like it was like definitively confronting and shedding the sort of adolescence and stepping into manhood, mm. which I then did a integration group every week for four years with that same group of men. Like we would meet every week and do deep, deep work. Mm. Um, 
but, but most people have no access to that, right? Like you know, most people, and we see it at the highest levels, you know, unindividuated masculinity, you know, like boy, boyhood, you know, there's, there's a, a book uh, called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover that I highly recommend to people. Also, obviously, I have a lot of people know David Data's work, but, but this archetype of the mature masculine, one of the aspects of the unindividuated masculine is what they call the armchair tyrant. And without naming names, I think we see a lot of that armchair tyrant even in the highest levels of leadership um, in our own country, where it's like, if someone hasn't been moved into and graduated into that sense of the true masculine, which is really a stand, like the traditional warrior creed wasn't about like, let's go off and kill people. It was like, I am a stand and willing to sacrifice myself. You know, today's a good day to die, right? Like, yeah, okay. Exactly. I am willing to sacrifice myself each day for that which is the bigger, like the greatness, right? My community, the great spirit, whatever it is, I'm willing to sacrifice myself. That is, uh, that is what this vessel is for. And inherently when you're in that space, it means that the other members of the tribe are there for you as well, which, which it's not just a one way street. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people, lots of people, I mean, I thought about this recently and I'm not proud. Like I was like, man, if you really think about it, Part of the reason I moved from New York was I thought to myself, if I fuck, if shit hit the fan, like who'd really have my back? Yeah. I have tons of friends, like tons of quote unquote friends, and they're good people. I'm not in saying that in a negative sense, but like when it comes down to the like, if you God forbid were in a hospital, who would actually show up every day? You know, like for me, that's a very small number of people when I got really real with myself. And I think that's the other piece, right? Is like I think in traditional, you know, societies and cultures, there was a mechanism, the entire structure of the society was built around that. And when you did go through frail, weak phases, which I'm directly confronting, for example, with my dad at the moment, there was a mechanism by which people would support that, right? Like whole, whole structures, you know, existed socially to, to revere the elder and also to acknowledge that there's a cycle to life and also embrace death, not as, not as like, you know, in the, in the sort of stoic sense, right? Like as an impetus for living, as opposed to like something we don't even talk about, you know? Yeah. So I think the, all those aspects, I think are, have, we've largely lost in this di- digital age. Um, and I think it's, there's gonna, there's gonna, there's gonna be a reckoning coming, not to say that we're going to lose technology. I think technology is going to keep going. And yeah. I think there are aspects in which technology is amazing. I'm not like a hater of technology. Um, uh, I love the fact that I could call Sri Lanka right now if I so chose. Yeah. Um, that's and so it can be pot- pot- profound for connection. But I do think that there's going to be a necessity to really get back into these ancient, you know, as you see, sort of in the nutrition sense, like the paleo movement. I think there's like a whole mindset orientation as it relates to uh, paleo, if you will, or ancient ways of being and thinking and doing that. I think we need to revivify if we if we have a, if we. Uh, you know, stand a chance. Terrence McKinnon calls it the guy in mind. And I think the big thing, the main thing none of us want to even think about is the fact that we're basically amidst a mass extinction. And if we don't wake up to ourselves, we will no longer exist. I mean, the earth will continue on, whether we as humans continue on. Yeah, sometimes I wonder, because we can get so, I mean, inevitably we can get and are uh, so wrapped up in our own filter and perspective of the world you know, and it's like we all live in our echo chambers, and now the algorithms of the internet make it even more echo yeah. chambery because they're li- literally listening to you. Totally. The Siri at my house, and she's <laughs> like, "Oh, cool, you're talking about the black thing." Like, all right, yeah. check your mail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. Um, 
Yeah, and, and it's, uh, oh, I had an interesting idea that I was excited about with that, but I don't know where it was going exactly. You might have something interesting to say about that in general. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I, I think that Siri, I mean, I, that, that, that'll take us into a whole different tangent. But but, but but the fact that our phones are listening to us. Yeah, they're listening oh, to us. Oh, for 100%, I mean, without question. Yeah. Well, so, um, so, so the in relation to, there was another idea that, that I got excited about, the fact that Siri We were talking about guy in mind a bit. Uh, and then you, and then that was a catalyst for your, your thought thinking around um, Siri. Yeah. And I can't I don't know where you were going. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. But yeah. so. What, like what kind of ancient, what did you call it? Ancient principles for a modern world. Yeah, ancient principles for modern living. I mean, I, so it's 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 the, it's really the concept I've been thinking about the most lately. And oh, and, I have my idea. Okay, go ahead, yeah, so bring it, sorry. bring it. No, no, don't, so don't, don't worry. Don't worry. Thank you. Sorry, <laughs> I got so because that's so crazy. That Siri's listening and she's like selling us stuff. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, but so. I, I'm gonna go on my phone after this, and it's gonna right. be like you know, like I don't yeah. even know, oh, like bell tents, yeah, and like you know, yeah, like all the things. Um, you know, so it's interesting how we have this perspective of like the world is coming to an end, and everything's collapsing, and we're all isolated, lonely, and an- anxious, and depressed, and like ah, yeah. you know. And I, sometimes I question if perhaps like Earth, Gaia, whatever the you know the 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 grander organism, for some reason really wanted the human species to create a bunch of trash and plastic, mm. you know, or maybe like, what is like the grand design to this? Yes. You know, and it, like, like I, I don't, and I don't think that's the reason to just like throw your hands up in the air and just say, okay, fuck it. Like, let's just, you know, destroy the whole thing. But I wonder if perhaps there's some other lens or filter of what this destruction is. And if maybe if we did pull out, yeah. you know, from like the, the 30,000 foot view of perhaps it's like, you know what, all this terrible destruction that we're doing, like maybe there is some grand design to it. Well, it's, I've thought about this a fair amount. And I think, <laughs> I think there's something interesting. There's a, so there's a mathematical cosmologist that I love named Brian Swim. And he talks about this concept to a degree. So I, I did like this deep like permaculture workshop and like, yeah, you're at the end, you're like, should I even have children? Because yeah. what, what's like the magnitude of the trash that will be, the, you know. But what, what came to me was... You know, what I love about the way he talks is, if, so you're going, so there's the micro, right, of like the trash and the plastic and all the things, which are super important. But then if you go macro, he's like, all right, well, what's amazing is we live in this incredible dynamic tension. And I would describe yeah. the, the challenge we face as, as commensurate with that tension. And what, what, did he, what he meant by that is to say, like, the earth exists within this, like, infinitesimally small band, between the sun and the planetary system such that it's allowed life to flourish as we know it. Like that's yep. a super small band. And that's not just true of the solar system, but the solar system like, within the universe, the universe within the multitude of universes. Like we're in this like very unique band and it's enabled the flourishing of life as we know it. And and you take that into a micro scale, like talk about like the, the rabbit and, and, and the hawk. The rabbit and the hawk have each evolved to be exactly what they are, like existentially and physically, biologically, because of the predator-prey relationship that they have, right? The hare has evolved to be, you know, adroit and fast and able to, like, you know, move. And the hawks evolved its eyesight in part to be able to continue that cycle of life, which is integral, right? So my thinking is, whether right or wrong, I don't know, that with any commensurate challenge, just as in the sort of predator-prey, there will be a commensurate evolution of consciousness that provides the antidote necessary to bring sh- things back into balance. Yeah. So amidst the plastic, amidst the shit, 
I think there's still the possibility for us to, you know, tune in if we get it if we get it right to find the, the solutions to figure out how we actually play on the spaceship. You know, we call Planet Earth in a way that doesn't tear it apart. But I think we're at a real critical point, and and the challenge is with all the noise, right? I would say that tuning that's tuning into signal. I think we're so besieged by noise, aka social media and all the things yeah. that keep us like this, that I think the great question is, can we pull ourselves back from the noise um, well enough and collectively such that we can hear the signal? Because I do think that, it's my belief, that, that there is, with any challenge, there's a commensurate opportunity for figuring itself out, because I think the guy in mind wants... I do believe challenges are part of the equation, but I also think that there is the antidote, the antidotal context of evolution that will enable that balancing. Because I think the Earth exists as a balancing entity, right? Like it, it's all—it's all about putting itself back into homeostasis, into balance. Now we're definitely not at balance right now. I think that the possibilities exist for us if we band together to bring it back to balance. But I'd say at the moment it's not looking fantastic, you know. So. The question is, does humanity make it? I don't know, but but I think, I think we've we it'd be you know I want to fight for us. Hopefully, you know, figuring out a way to do it in the small way that I can, yeah. Um, because yeah, I mean, plastic and it exists as it does. So I think that's like that's the bigger there's a bigger philosophical piece, right? Like, would anything sort of evolve, and then you get micro at this, and then you think about atrocities, and it's like, well, I mean, I don't know what the justification for those are. I don't know why they exist. I'm yeah. not. Gonna, I'm not going to pretend to posit that I do know. Well, like the atrocities of like you know a man lighting himself on fire at a at a protest or something like that. It's like if you look at that at a microscopic level, it's like, well, that was terrible, you know. But then if you pull it back, you're like. Well, the, the meaning of that moment actually ended up creating this catalyst that created global change. So if we're at the, the man burning in the moment, it's like, oh my God, like we have really fucked up. Yeah. You know, but it wakes you up. It, but it, it wakes you up. So I think that it's, it's like the, the people that say that, you know, the, the, the boy that decides that he needs to bring a weapon to school and, you know, prove a point that he's he's a man or, you know, what, you know, whatever, whatever his, his reasoning behind that is to get to that point of wanting to do that. I think there's a lot of traumas that have been covered and pushed under the rug and pushed under the rug and pushed under the rug and pushed under the rug, you know, and it's like we, we have resistance to having trauma in any instance, but in fact, those little micro traumas regularly throughout allow us to kind of decompress and not have that one huge, explosive, devastating macro trauma. But if you don't have the micro traumas reckoned with, I mean, I think that uh, what you bring is oh, is a really interesting point, right? Like, so you first talk about like the self emoliation of lighting one on fire, and that at least the reference I think of is like Vietnam era monk, and that is like a super conscious choice of a person, granted, inflicting ultimate existential ending to themselves. Then you brought up this point of like these young men coming into school and this notion of micro traumas. And what's interesting is, you know, I think there's so many, there's so many traumas happening now at such a pace, right? Like again, sort of bring Terrence McKinnon back. He talks about the world is evolving at, now at such an exponential rate, right? Like, so like, and I forgive me if I butcher the quote, but he's like, since 1995, the world has changed more than it did in the previous thousand years, you know, like, and so I think when you think about how that affects the human vehicle, 
and the and this delicate thing we call the psyche within that vehicle. Uh, and you focus a tremendous amount, obviously, on the physicality, which is so integral. But and we often forget. And I think it's an it's a it's a central conversation. But psychologically, so many people are besieged with all these traumas and like. There's no operating manual for modern day living, and there's no tribe to hold you to guide you now. It, and, and so that's what's crazy, is you put these people in, many of them suffer abuses or, you know, and I'm not, again, I'm not like justifying in any way, shape, or form these actions, but many people are besieged by these traumas and they have nothing to shepherd them through those micro traumas. So those micro tra traumas oftentimes compound on each other because oftentimes, we have this culture of like, I'm going to get you like competitive, like get up back, back and forth until it gets bigger and bigger and it escalates. And then these, and it be, explodes, right? Yeah. And if you don't find a way to, for lack of a better analogy, turn that into sort of spiritual compost, right? Take the shit in your life and actually transmute it into like seeing some of those challenges as obstacles to transcend, which, which is what a rite of passage was, right? Traditionally, when a boy was seen as like fucking ready for manhood, they would go through an arduous journey. Yeah. And, and, and it wasn't like, you know, like a video game. It was some real shit, you know, it was like, like in the Amazon, you know, there's a, there's a tribe where it's like, okay, you know, I see you flirting with that little girl, right? Who's now entering puberty. Like you continue on that boyhood way, all of a sudden you're going to be starting to pop out babies and like you're, you're 13 years old, like time for the men to take you on like a little bit of a trip and existentially confront death, right? Like they would use fire ants, like excruciating pain. But then on the opposite side of that, one would see the, the role they played and they would be embraced in the culture and the society in a way where they were seen, they were recognized. And I think so many people don't have that benefit, right? Like they're just lost. They don't feel seen. They don't feel a sense of purpose. They're not held. There's no one that really has their back. And compound that on like, multiple levels of trauma it's not a it's not a recipe for i think a healthy articulation of humanity yeah so yeah so what do you think so i have experienced tangible moments i've, I've ended up i think kind of aimlessly seeking out various different forms of rites of passage ever since trying to beer bong a 40 in front of <laughs> totally you know, yeah. 30 people in a basement when i was 15 yeah getting into rock climbing and almost killing myself and yeah. getting into surfing and being waves where I'm like, oh, I really don't belong here. Like, this is bad. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Not me. I've been there too in the surf, yeah. It's like, if people ask me if I surf, I'm like, well, not well. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then to uh, psychedelics, which has been, I think, one of the more, I mean, all of those, honestly, each one of those was, was, was learned in different ways. Mm. Um, but I've had post- uh, particularly like, well, whatever, fill in the blank, like ayahuasca, psilocybin, both of those have been getting to the un the other side of that experience where during there was lots of fear yeah, and lots of like, oh my God, I don't know if I'll ever be the same and I don't know if I'm ever going to come back from this and I don't know, like all these different things. Yeah. And then you get to the other side and there's this like deep sensation of, um, gratitude's not the word I'm looking for, but progress isn't either. Um, but just like, it's like a sensation of like a rite of passage of some sort, like totally. the closest thing that I've, ex I've experienced in my life of like, oh, like I feel like I've kind of like, uh, I've like walked through the, you know, the fire in a way and it yes. to the other side and like, okay, like how do I address life now that I've actually been exposed myself to that fire? Totally. 
um, one, what happens if a person, and I, I still feel like I'm attached to a lot of boy stuff. Like I still, I don't, I don't think I fully come through a rite of passage. I think my book has been actually one of the other kind of arduous journeys of sorts. I'm starting to feel a little bit more in myself. Totally. Uh, post book, which is interesting. Um, but so how does one navigate rite of passage in a modern world? And if one does not, what are the effects and does it matter at all? Yeah, I mean, huge question. I've, for me, it's one of the central questions of our time. And so there's so many different articulations of rite of passage, but because you mentioned, for example, psychedelics, I'll, I'll approach that first. I think because we don't have a tremendous number of healthy containers or, or this sort of tribal worldview, you know, for me, without going to great narrative, I had deep traumas when I was young. So I was jumped by a gang my first experience alone abroad. I got jumped by like 30 guys. 30? So, yeah. So I was like, I associated, well, not How all at the same time. How hand on you? Oh, I mean, like probably, probably like seven or eight. And then fortunately it got, it got broken up. But so, but so what happened is psychologically, I started to associate uh, going away from the nest solo and I love traveling. I grew up with a passion for traveling. But that was my first, I was 12. That was my first experience alone abroad. I, I associated travel with trauma. So for me, the rite of passage, my, one of my first initial rites of passage, which is what led me to Sri Lanka, was facing that. So I, I developed what they call an obsessive compulsive personality. And mm. the prescription was Prozac and, you know, psychotherapy. Mm. But basically I was like, you know, okay, um, you know, if you're in an acute level of depression, I think that makes sense. But for me, I was like, I had enough wherewithal where I like could step back and I was like, all right, I'm about to step into an area of extreme discomfort because when I have stepped away from the home and the sanctity of the home, I've had very traumatic experiences, like actually traumatic experiences. So I associate leaving the nest with trauma. Now in traditional cultures, when we, when when some when faced trauma or was looking at how they could you know be in the world, they had a community and a worldview in which to assuage that anxiety through rituals and and community, and I just didn't have that. So I was creating rituals on my own, obsessive compulsive rituals like checking the <laughs> stove, etc. Right. But basically, I was like, okay, I'm just doing what people have been doing since time immemorial. I'm ritualizing my behavior. It just doesn't exist within the traditional socio-religiosity that, that, that would have existed sort of thousands of years ago. Wow. So to me, I was like, all right, I'm going to go as deep into my fear as possible. I'm going to go to the other side of the world, which was Sri Lanka from where I grew up in Chicago, and confront that fear. And that's actually where I met this, uh, this, this traditional Ayurvedic shaman. And I, he, he was a seventh-generation healer. He didn't have a son, so he invited me in. And I had this profound experience. That's a whole deep narrative. But I think... What that led me to was one, I was able to transcend those great fears. What because was the deep I, experience? Can you get into it? Oh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, well, I went to a country amidst civil war. So, every, literally on every corner in Sri Lanka, there was a guy in, a, in like a medicine, you know, like behind sandbags with like M60s, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, I was in this paradox of this Buddhist culture amidst civil war, which was like a... Uh, I don't know how to describe it, but it was a profound mirror based on what I was reckoning with because I had this inner peace, but also this sort of turmoil. What year is this? This was I was 19 years old, so this was uh, 20 years, 23 years ago. Okay. Um, and so in that again in that worldview, what I studied was ostensibly this form of Ayurvedic shamanism called Bhutavidya, which is one of the eight branches of Ayurveda, and it's about the occult. So it's basically an exorcistic rite. So when someone fell out of balance or also into their own version of disease, right? In our culture, if someone's out of balance, they may, they may be called schizophrenic and institutionalized. 
in a traditional society, perhaps, I'm not going to say definitively, a schizophrenic might be an ideal shaman, right? And yep. now we, like, shamans, like, you know, you're in Venice, people call themselves a shaman. It's like, that wasn't a sexy it's thing. Great it was like, up <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's my man. That's that. Yeah, Erwan. $24 It's my great, it's my great. Wear a shirt like I'm wearing right now. <laughs> I'm, girl, I'm a shaman. It's my great, it's my great, <laughs> my greatest pet peeve. But, but anyway, well, that's the story for another time. Um, so, 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 yeah, so, I mean, I think, we we have this thing of like people people are yearning after this, but like a, traditionally a shaman was not a sexy exotic thing. It was like you agreed to live outside of society to basically shepherd your community forward by being an intermediary between this world and the next, right? The spirit world and this world. So when you t- talk about things like psychedelics, the rituals I studied weren't particularly did not use entheogenic medicines, but did use things like dance and music to induce trance and. It was sort of a, a co- it was a cosmological recreation of everyone's shared worldview from sunset to sunrise, which is also traditionally how many um, psychedelics would have been administered in traditional contexts. But I do think, in the context of for those who are seeking that rite of passage, I mean, I think things like the Mankind Project for Men is really a profound vehicle. I do think there are few vehicles when used what I would say ethically, and this obviously is my own definition, but ethically uh, and intentionally, I think very few things have the potential impact of psychedelics uh, when held in an intentional container. I think the challenge with it is, I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, they, again, with that Western mind, they think of like a psychedelic as a drug and like just, they just want the ecstasies. They want to get out of their mind, but they're not using it intentionally. And Mm -hmm. I think... As you know, having having uh, done some some journeys yourself, it's like if it's actually held, and I've had the good fortune of sitting, you know, for example, uh, with like the Huayca in Mexico around peyote, and with a, some very profound um, uh, shamans in Brazil uh, around ayahuasca, and it's not something I've talked about a tremendous amount publicly, but it, but has it been prof- absolutely profound for me in terms of my own evolution of consciousness and rebalancing absolutely is the is it uh a way in which to i think tap into and beyond that sort of default construct of consciousness that we often get trapped in right like the thing that we wake up identifying with aka our ego mind because that every day we tell ourselves the same stories yes it's a massive reset and and transcendence of our default uh, mode network, right? Which they talk about cognitively. Yeah. And there's very few things that can do that. I mean, I've been a meditator for 23 years and I think there's very few tools that are as profound, but I also think with modern day life and living, when you have people that have experienced acute traumas, I think meditation, for example, and other, uh, forms and modalities are integral to maintaining that balance. A lot of the movement practices you talk about, you know, walks, etc. But what if you have situations of extreme PTSD, you know, very few things are demonstrating the efficacy that say, for example, a well-administered, well-held, um, psychedelic ceremony can do. But I think the key distinction, which I think often isn't spoken about is to me, when you talk about plant medicines, and I think plant medicines do in the Terrence McKenna sense, bring us back into that guy in mind, bring us back into that ancestral worldview, that, that way of being that is beyond our egoic minds. A lot of it is about set and setting and intention, and then also who's holding that container, right? So some people are going off to like a rave and taking these things. And to me, that's like, you're opening yourself or like going to some cat who went to Peru and is at Erwan for a week. And it's like, dude, I'll serve you. You know, like that's actually to be super dangerous because it's like, they don't know what they're dealing with. And, and 
you know, depending on your beliefs or not, I actually do believe that there is a, a, a spiritual element and dimensionality to this life and to this world, which we unfortunately, I think, have not been shepherded forward in in terms of, of the reverence and respect. But traditionally, you know, like there's so many things that go on behind the scenes. For example, offerings, you know, there's spiritual payments that are made by these actual shamans mm -hmm. that enable them to hold the space for you to do the deep work. And what does people, spiritual payment mean? Spiritual payments and offering. So, for example, in uh, I'll just give a cogent example for, yeah. for for those listening. So, for example, like um, in like a traditional Wadika peyote ceremony, uh, Wadika is a, a tradition in Mexico. Um, there, even for someone to be able to serve peyote, oftentimes, for example, if that person's a single person, that's like a they're taking a vow, and we're talking a multi-year vow. For example, of abstaining from sexuality. If they're in a partnership, they're committing to only be with that partner. Right. When you do a ceremony, you're cleansing all of your sins. You're cutting cords from all of your previous partners. Because when you, there's a belief that when you align with someone sexually, you're also taking, you're aligning chakras and you're taking on their energy. And they can cord you and you can cord them. So you're cutting those cords with love and reverence. And you're offering that to the sacred fire. You know, you're, you're basically cleansing yourself of, 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 of some of these various acts in a way that liberates both yourself and the other from that energetic attachment. Mm. You're also making offerings to the sacred fire, to the, to the, to the sacred waters, to the earth, to, the, to, to that great Gaian aspect of life that all, many of us take for granted, right? And so that's, so, so basically the act in and of itself of the ceremony is an act of offering, like in, in its true essence, as I understand it with my own limited view, you know, but having studied it. So there's, there's this orientation around, you know, also that depth is commensurate with the intentionality, right? Like the commitment of, for example, a gentleman, Banky, who, who's this beautiful Brazilian shaman, he's planted over 2 million trees in and of himself. Mm. And he will go diet for six months at a time in the forest by himself, right? So, like, he's literally, there. there's a, an ability and, and part of the medicine comes from commensurate with that, with that offering, that sacrament, that dedication that's coming from someone who's lived in relationship and committed themselves to the medicine for years of their lives. And so in the context of ceremony, which can be a profound rite of passage, you know, I think with the Western mind, we often think, oh, okay, I'm just taking this exogenous substance that will cause me to quote unquote trip. And then, you know, I'll have these revelations. In my particular view, it's actually way deeper than that. It's not a drug. You're taking a whole plant, in this context, a master plant, which happens to probably have played a very significant role in even the evolution of the human entity and consciousness in and of itself. I mean, yeah. there, there are people who postulate that. Terence McKenna talks, calls it the Stone Ape Theory. Yeah, exactly. Whether that's true or not, I still believe you can see whether it be you wanted to look at Wachuma, you want to look at peyote ayahuasca, there are, there's physical evidence that we know about that dates back three, six thousands of years. I mean, like we're talking a very ancient form of tradition that's only been codified as a quote-unquote drug uh, in the last 50 years in, in places, 50 to 70 years, um, which, which was obviously attached to politics as well. And there is something dangerous when you're talking about a default mode of consciousness and network that, 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 that the free thinking and, and tapping into the guy in mind can be a massive disruption to, to the default way of being, right? So, so I do think to the rite of passage context, I think, uh, I think a well-held ceremony 
Um, and, and the medicine is, is not just the, the physical sacrament, but the who's holding the space, the commitments they've made, how they've prayed over, in my view, the preparation of that medicine, you know, where it was sourced. I mean, even, for example, this is wild, but like, even like a Wachuma cactus, every Wachuma is different, right? B based on the soil it, it's grown in, based on the amount of sun, based on the intention. So like, there's whole levels at which like, we don't fully like comprehend the nuance of the medicine. And then this, and then who are you, you're entering into the field, right? You're entering into that collective consciousness. Who are you sitting with? You know, because yeah. you can do their work and they can do your, like it, you're entering. So having that be a well-contained space. And then in my particular worldview also like, if you're not, if it isn't being held with integrity and there are some, you know, just as there are yoga teachers that may not have the best intentions, there, there are, you know, not everyone has the best, you know, if it's a safe space that allows the depth at which you can explore and prevents some of the negative forces, I think both in terms of, you know, other humans and also um, energetics to, to, to be held at bay such that someone can have the true trust to be able to delve deeply into themselves. That plus, and I think here's where the real work comes in, integration, which no one, very few people talk about, right? Like that can be a rite of passage, but any ecstasies, um, which have been used for thousands of years as a mechanism for transcendence needs to, in my view, to be integrated. And that's why I said when I did that men's work, which involved no entheogenic plants, that was, that was strictly just like hard emotional rite of passage um, and beautiful, beautiful work. Um, but that the, the sea change came not from that weekend, which was profound and beautiful, but actually from the four years of week in, week out, committing to show up and support other men in this way of like, you know, I'm going to show you my darkness, my shadow, my light, and I'm going to hold you and see you and love you and fucking shepherd you through regardless, no matter what comes up, I've got your back, you know, yeah. that integration for me led to a sea change from dark night of the soul to like, you know, moving to New York, grad school, professional context evolution, all the things, but it was like four years, you know? So I think to me, there, there are different mechanisms. I think plant medicines can be a profound uh, vehicle. And I think they're one, given my particular views, given how fast things are moving, I think they're one of the ways that can be the most disruptive. But I just think the, the nature of the container is so critical and so infrequently talked about in terms of who's serving the medicine and how it's held and the integrity of that vehicle. But in a well-held vehicle with the proper integration, I think there's very few um, ancient technologies uh, that, that compare to a great, uh, a great plant medicine in terms of the power to disrupt yeah. the default mode network and 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 have you know uh, an impetus in totally changing the way that you go about living your life. You know, I'm sure I'm guessing we haven't talked deeply about it, but I'm guessing that's been the case for you. It's for sure been the case for me. I'm like, all right, like changed my professional course, changed even how I go about dating and what I'm looking for in terms of relationships. Like, it's been like a total shift. I mean, I still have work I'm doing, no question about it. Not, but but but. You know, for example, right now I'm not drinking, right? Like I'm not saying I'll never have a drink again, but I just realized I had done a ceremony and, and then I went and it was my birthday and I was on a boat in Ibiza and I was like, oh yeah, of course I'll have some rosé, you know, like let's do it. And it was like, I just worked my ass off, like gone through the trials and tribulations, true rite of passage, felt all the best I've ever felt in my life. And literally one sip of alcohol, not that it was like bad or I was hung over, but it was like, 
I just, I could tell that I was like numbing myself, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And um, not so, well, I'm not making it, you know, anyone who is out there who's drinking bad, anything like that. I just recognized it myself. I was like, well, shit, that's probably not serving me. And like, as I'm trying to do exactly what you just did, right? Which is write a book and think about like things that require long-term focus and commitment. And I'm battling through other things like Lyme exposure and now mold. You know, it's like, okay, well, I can't, like, I can't, I, 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 this, the deck's already, like, you know, I got I to gotta shuffle for a new hand. And, I, and things like alcohol and whatnot probably aren't going to serve me as I move through this phase. So, but that, that commitment and that insight came to me because of, for example, those plants, right? Where I was like, that's like... I've just been like, I've just been, I've been sipping at the most sacred of waters and like, I'm going to go back to like McDonald's to eat, like, you know, like, yeah. and that's what like, but to me, alcohol is like the McDonald's of mind altering substances. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, no, no, that's not, that's again, not to make it wrong. I was just like, it's not, it's not my kind of, it's not my, it's not my thing. If, if I'm actually committed to, which is what I saw, which is what I've seen sort of in, in my own work, whether it be medicine work or meditation or uh, some of these other journeys, it's like, okay, it just shows you where you are and where you can be. But I think to bring it full circle, I think if we look at our lives also as sacred offerings, which I think is the other tenant, which is one of the things I want to talk about in this book, I think, you know, life rate rises up to us to the degree that we're willing to offer ourselves, you yep. know, and I think we can live our life as an offering. And to me, you know, that's, that's really what I'm wanting to commit more towards is like, okay, how can I, how can I live my life as an offering? Cause so much, so much of the things that I, that I think I desperately want that I've been going about in a certain way, whether that's like a true love partnership, you know? And I'm like, well, okay, well I'll just law of average, you know, like I'll, if I date, you know, at some point I'll meet that person, you know? Whereas like, I know intellectually, but it's not what I actually want to contend with where now I'm like, and you know, I've talked about this. It's like, you know, we're relatively, you know, you know, young guys, you know, we could, we could probably like have a multitude of potential experiences. I'm now to the point where I'm like, man, like I'm sacrificing true fulfillment for fun. Like I'm actually choosing fun time and again. And most of the, sometimes it's not even fun, you know, <laughs> like, and what's, what's at stake? Well, for me, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably about a decade older than you, but for me, what's at stake is like, I'm looking at it and I'm like, man, you know, like I do know, I know in myself, I want to have a family. Yeah. So what's at stake is like, I'm not saying that like life's going to like, oh, like golden tunnel wants to have a family, but I'm, I'm recognizing in myself that like, I'm actually choosing fun over the true fulfillment. So now, for example, like I'm kind of like taking away, I'm like de-arming myself from the life I had been living, right? Like I'm taking out like the casual drinking. I'm like, I'm committing, doubling down on the things that I feel like will help me raise in terms of like who I want to be. Because yeah. my belief is that, that my queen will sort of come to me when I've done that work within yeah. and not like by me just like swiping on Bumble or whatever, you know, like, yeah. swi yeah. swi swiping left. So and part, thanks for listening. I just went on a massive, uh, just so went off I on wonder, a massive diet. So I wonder with like something I've heard recently that I thought was really nice. I heard it before, but I heard it recently. I feel like I like heard it even better, um, was we can get filled up with knowledge and then you know, first there's like ignorance and then your know, knowledge and you get the information and memorization and you're like, it can appear as though a person has all these amazing stuff because they're 
have these quotes and these studies and research and like mm-hmm. pretty much describing myself. <laughs> you know, yeah. and then they from there there's a you can go into a place of wisdom where you can assimilate that knowledge and you become lighter and it just becomes like a part of your DNA mm-hmm. and you kind of let go and then drop those bags and just be and you can kind of access these things at will. I wonder with experience with shamans, which is, I think, kind of like a charged word for some people listening, but people that you would consider to be like true shamans. Yeah, true, yeah. True teachers. Oftentimes they don't call themselves shamans yeah, in my exactly. experience. So yeah. maybe, maybe teachers or guides or anything like that, whatever the, whatever word works for a person, but shamans. Yeah. Um, is there any unspeakable lessons that you've, I mean, I'm inherently I'm saying, I guess you won't be able to speak it, but kind of like more wisdom-based lessons that were not necessarily something that you were told, but something that you felt? Yes, 100%. And I think you actually draw, I don't know whether you intend to do this or not, but I think you draw one of the most profound distinctions that I think could be of greatest service to uh, the audience, which is, in my humble experience, uh, and I, I, I have what, what I have been very graced with, which is, you know, I think a lot of life is about being in the listening. And what I've what I reckoned, and you and I have talked quite a bit about, because I think about, okay, what do I want to, what way can I be most of service? Is I have been graciously invited into some very unique contexts, ceremonies, rooms, so to speak. And those with whom I think I, I, I have felt the greatest wisdom are oftentimes the most humble, they do not dress the part. Uh, you know, there's a gentleman who I'll, who I'll speak of. Um, I'm, I'll tell a quick story because it'll, it'll, it'll sort of bring this out a little bit more. But I actually had the very uh, profound opportunity of sitting um, in sort of the Native American church style with a gentleman named Jerry, who was Dine Navajo. Large man, you know, dressed. When I met him, trucker hat, T-shirt. Like, he's not like, you know, he's not trying to, pre- you know, present any particular image, but he's a, he's a road man, which is what, the, what, what someone who's called who's been serving peyote for over 30 years. Mm. And I describe it as like, say you're sitting next to Aretha Franklin on the bus, you know? You'd have no idea that she was Aretha Franklin. Yeah. But then if you saw her sing, you'd be like, what was that, right? Yeah. I don't know if anyone listening has seen A River Runs Through It, but there's a scene at the end where Brad Pitt sort of has figured out this casting technique because he's put in his 20,000 hours on the fly fishing and, you know, it's sort of a peeking in and, like, he's created his own technique, his own dance with the, with the casting reel such that he's, like, he's in his mastery. He's created something beyond what has been done before. Jerry... Sitting with him at sunrise, and I won't, I'm not going to betray any, anything of the ceremony, but seeing him with a rattle, and the rattle is oftentimes, as is the case with music, the mechanism through which we unlock the keys in our mind. Yeah. The way that he moved with that rattle, the way that he held himself and carried himself, calling everyone relatives, not prescribing, um, telling anyone how to live their life, by the way. Not, there was no prescription, no declaration, no nothing. When he taught, if, if you even want to consider it taught, he taught in sharing stories. Yeah. And in those stories were anecdotes that one could find the answers they were looking for themselves. And I think what's, what's powerful about, to me, the true master, quote-unquote, shaman, or the master plant is they show you that you are the healer yourself, right? Mm-hmm. They are providing you with a lighthouse in which narrative can be used to point you in the right direction. 
the people I'm wary of, which is which are frankly prolific in our you know technological age, are all the people that say that they have the magic pill. You know, they've got the right solution. You know, and in my again my humble experience, the people that I've found the most value in in terms of their way of being, and you can feel it. You know, it's like. Like, you know, it's like you're sitting next to Aretha on the bus. Like, you just sense there's something special, you know? Like, with this guy, with Jerry, it was like when he started that talking, he'd say, good morning, relatives, and the stories he would share reminded me of this movie, which I recommend anyone check out, called The Straight Story, uh, where this gentleman, true story, takes his tractor, he finds out he has cancer, and he takes his tractor from Iowa to Michigan, a thousand miles, to go see his brother, who he hasn't talked to for ten years. And it's just about a man reckoning with himself and his imperfect past. And along the way, he meets people, inclusive of which is this young girl who's run away from home. I think she was pregnant or something, you know, 15, 16. And he sits by the side of the road and he just offers her a safe haven for the evening. Doesn't tell her what to do. Doesn't tell her this this or that. He just provides the context through story in which she gets the answer she needs. And Jerry, to me, was sort of an exemplification of that, like that true elder that basically shared that story. And I think, to me, that is what it is. The, 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 the shaman is the, the mechanism by which, the conduit through which the story is shared such that you can receive the light in the way that is most profound and appropriate to your consciousness and, and, and unlocks it in a way that you know what you need to do. Whether you choose to do it or not is up to you. But like, but basically to me, it's that, it's that unlocking of possibility and potential in a safe space where you can sort of be very clear on what the next step is in walking your walk. And I think if you have, if you have a plant medicine, which to me is a sacred technology and a well-held uh, orchestrator, which is a, a true shaman, there's very few um, there's very few technologies that provide that kind of context in modern day living that I think can give you um, that level of insights outside of that context. I mean, there there are very powerful modalities from breath work to meditation. I'm not to say you have to take, take an entheogenic medicine, but it is one of the most profound contexts for reckoning and realization in and when it's held by what I would call a true a true master. Yeah. With that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's. I think that we got we got to wrap this up. But I think that that's everything that you just said is what uh, my conscious mind is working to tap into, so that my conscious mind can kind of get out of the way. Yeah, you know, so I'm kind of totally. like I'm, I'm like you know actively navigating myself into that, so I can just let go and just be navigated. Yeah. So. You and me both, man. Yeah. <laughs> so where should people go from here? I appreciate you making time to get. To yeah, dude, honestly, it's a bit of pleasure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you and I will likely have conversations down the road. But uh, if anyone wants to reach out, um, just hit me up at Michael Trainer on the socials. Uh, Peak Mind with Michael Trainer is the podcast which you're about to be on, and PeakMind.org is my my company. Cool. Yeah. And on your podcast, you've had. You had like Gandhi and <laughs> not Gandhi that I know about, no. But uh, but I have had some some. Uh, I've been fortunate to host some some wonderful humans. Yeah, yeah name yeah. drop a couple. <laughs> well, we launched, which I launched Peak Mind with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So Dalai Lama is the first was the first episode. Um, 
but uh, everyone from sort of, you know, which I, I think some of the folks you've had, you know, the Mark Hyman's, um, uh, the, you know, Laird Hamilton, Maria Sharapova on the on that side to the sort of uh, Deepak Chopra, Dalai Lama. I did actually have Banky, the gentleman I just mentioned, oh, that, cool. that Brazilian shaman. Right. That, was, that was the first foreign language episode I've ever done. So it's uh, translated from Portuguese. So wow. it's probably for those who have a little bit more patience. But I, my intention actually moving forward is to do a lot more um, around finding these and revealing some of these true, where it's appropriate, because I think some of it's better kept secret and for those who are ready and when they find them. But as I discover those who I think are desired to be shared, I'm going to share more of um, some of these other traditions um, through the podcast. Right. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks yeah. for having me. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's wrap this pitch up. On yeah. to the next one. Thank All you. right. You got it. Done. And there you have it, my conversation with Aaron Alexander. I hope you got a lot of value out of it. I wanted to share a little more personally and a little more vulnerably into my why and what drives me so that you guys have a greater appreciation, hopefully, for um, you know what, what my impetus is for, for bringing you this content and why I'm doing the podcast and the newsletter and the blog and soon book and what drives me and so that you know that I'm deeply committed to building community and building a broader based movement um, for all of us. And hopefully you got some insights into tools that you can utilize in your own lives. Uh, that was my intention. And uh, if you found value in the podcast, please go ahead and lead us a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, as you know, those uh, five-star reviews help us move up the algorithm and help in the discovery for other folks to join this community. And as always, feel free to reach out to me at Michael Trainer on social media, Twitter, Instagram, etc. with any thoughts, feedback, recommendations. Your voice is always welcome and encouraged. And with that, please go out there and live your inspired life.